Before we begin this episode, a warning. All of these tales are graphic, this one especially so. Every shooting I've covered is tragic and stupid, but some can seem more so than others. Over a nine-day span in 2010, five people were murdered and nine more injured in a series of shootings in Washington, D.C., The spate began over the supposed theft of a fake gold bracelet studded with cheap colored glass. Five deaths over a bracelet that wasn't even real gold. Of the dozens of bullets spent over the thing, two tore through Roshana Brown's leg and back in a scene she has relived countless times in her nightmares. Riding a car, somebody pull up next to you, you get shot. Walking out of your house, you get shot. Jumping off a building, walking down the street on the bus, somebody pulls up next to me and I get shot. And it was pretty much every possible way that you could think of being shot and dying, I've had it. From the team that brought you accused, in collaboration with The Trace, this is Aftermath, a podcast about gunshot survivors. I'm Amber Hunt. Roshana is a slight young woman with eyes that seem to size us up when we first meet. At one point during the interview, she calls a friend while we're recording and happens to explain why she's guarded. But I really don't like talking to people. I like I just I just decided to talk to them just because I actually like Elizabeth. She's talking about Elizabeth Van Brocklin, my reporting partner on this project from The Trace, a nonprofit newsroom that covers gun violence nationally. You don't hear much from Elizabeth on the podcast for two reasons. First, because she's soft-spoken. And second, because her biggest role has been behind the scenes, reaching out to gunshot victims to find ones willing to talk about their experiences. Because not everyone is. Some don't want the attention... Some worry their stories will be distorted by politics. One canceled on us the night before our flights to see him because he said his family didn't want him talking. Roshana's reluctance is a little different. I get the sense she doesn't trust people. And during the interview, it becomes clear why. Roshana's first brush with gun violence wasn't her shooting in 2010. My dad has been deceased since 1997. How did your dad pass away? Um, He got shot in in the neighborhood in 1997. Wow, okay. What's that? It's a gambling game, I think. They were gambling in some type of dispute, and it got violent. What are the odds, right? Well, it's hard to say. The tens of thousands of shootings each year in America aren't well tallied as it is, And studying the numbers that we do have hasn't been encouraged on the federal level. Roshana was born and grew up in Washington, D.C., which has one of the highest rates of violence in the country. The year her dad died, there were about 300 homicides. City officials have been working to curb that number, and by the time Roshana was shot, the tally had fallen by nearly half. She was raised by her mother, who, coincidentally, also was shot two years ago in D.C., Her mom's recovery is one of the reasons Roshana dropped out of her first college in West Virginia. She wanted to be able to help her mom the way her mom had helped her eight years ago. When you hear about a family that's endured three separate shootings, you probably picture a pretty rough home life. But no, that's not really the case here. 
After Rishana's father died, her mother and grandparents kept life stable. Rishana went to private schools and excelled in her classes. In fact, she says, Most people would probably say I'm spoiled. Like, I just have a good support system. My grandparents and my mom, and since our family is so knit-tight, I have a lot of people that are supporting me. For a long time, that support system included Brichelle Jones, whose mom became like a second mother. Rashana and Brichelle were beyond close from the moment they met at their all-girls middle school. She was just really shy and quiet. The middle school was tiny. Just 10 kids were in Rashana and Brichelle's class their final year there. And there were no boys, so there were no filters. They all knew about each other's first kisses, their first periods, their dreams. Brichelle's mother, Nardine Jeffries, remembers the two were inseparable. Talking on the phone, she said. They were like Bitsy and Bopsy, Hethel and Jekyll, Lucy and Ethel. I mean, you saw one, you saw the other. They were really, really close. Brichelle liked watching cooking shows with her mom, and eventually, as a teenager, she started cooking too. It started out kind of rough when I was teaching her how to, you know, scramble eggs. She was like, why do my eggs always stick and yours don't? <laughs> and I'm baking chicken and, you know, I'd say, watch it and do this, that, and third. And the chicken was like sawdust. I was like, oh, my God, Michelle. <laughs> but it was like, it was so dry. Oh, my God, it was dry. But then it was like, within no time, she just mastered it. I mean, she just got really good with it. She wanted to be a chef. She even impressed Rashana. She cooked all the time. And one of her specialties, I don't understand, like I still to this day, I don't eat guacamole. But she makes the best guac ever. And I don't know if she makes it taste like not guac, but whatever she put in her guacamole, I always ate it. And I still don't eat guacamole to this day from nowhere else. Rashana felt protective of Brichelle. She was always a little one and I've always like taken up her because people are like, she's so little and petite and she had like really long hair. So people would pick on her because she was quiet, like flick her hair and do stuff. And she'd just be like, leave me alone, I'll do that. So I would just defend her and take up for her. And then as our relationship grew, I felt like the roles switched. I became the big sister who was treated like the younger sister just because she's always like, don't talk to my sister that way. And don't look at my sister and no, you can't do this with my sister. And we're going here together. We're planning birthday parties together. She's always trying to figure out what it is that I want to do. It's her birthday. And she's like, what do you want to do? I'm like, well, it's your birthday. What do you want to do? She's like, whatever you want to do. It's like we were two peas in a pod. And that's pretty much our relationship. She's just, most people would say that she's just overall a loving, bright, caring person. That's the type of person that she was. Always putting others before herself. The girls rode the bus home from school together every day. They had regular sleepovers. They did the stuff that teenage BFFs do. And then they got shot together. Why that happened is a little complicated. To help me understand the story, I talked with Paul Duggan, a reporter with the Washington Post who wrote a hard-boiled story about the events that unfolded back in 2010. So... This young man named Sanquan Carter went by Bootsy, was court involved, as they say, right? He was, I believe he was free awaiting uh, disposition of a, of a criminal case. He was supposed to be staying the night in a 
a facility called Peace Abode, which is a sort of halfway house kind of situation for uh, young people who are awaiting court cases. And he did not sleep in Peace Abode one night. Instead, he went down to a party on Alabama Avenue. That's Alabama Avenue, a street in southwest Washington, which, as Duggan explains... Mainly, most of the homicides occur in an area that we refer to as east of the river, which is a sprawling part of Washington that tourists never see. It was March 21, 2010, and another young man was at that Alabama Avenue party, too. His name was Jordan Howe. Sanquam was the owner of the aforementioned fake gold bracelet. It was cheap costume jewelry, but he liked the way it looked and routinely showed it off. So anyway, he was down there at a party on Alabama Avenue, an apartment complex, and he took off this cheap bracelet he had been wearing, cheap gold bling, put it down for a lot of reasons. He was going inside actually to have sex with a young woman. And when he came out, the bracelet was gone, and this infuriated him. He marched around demanding to frisk a lot of the people at the party. The people at the party laughed at him and shoved him aside. San Juan got even angrier. He called his brother, Orlando Carter, and told him he'd been disrespected. Orlando grabbed two friends, Nathaniel Sims and Jeffrey Best. Then they rode down there with some weapons, a pump-action shotgun and uh, an AK-47 that Orlando kept. He referred to that weapon as his bitch. Now they begin trying to frisk people at gunpoint, still getting no respect. After some deliberation, maybe a few seconds, they decided to just open fire, which they did. They killed Jordan Howe, a young man who lived in the apartment complex. Two others were injured. San Juan got arrested, and police wanted to arrest the other suspected shooters as well. But as police chief Kathy Lanier told reporters, We don't always agree with the U.S. Attorney's Office. Sometimes we have a difference of an opinion. And my goal is to stop more people from being injured. And when we submitted an arrest warrant, the United States Attorney's Office has to make a decision. Do we always agree? No. Rashana knew Jordan from the neighborhood. She and Brichelle were naturally upset that someone they knew was killed, and they made plans to attend his funeral nine days later. What they didn't know was that in the meantime, someone paid Orlando a visit as payback for Jordan. This someone wasn't officially identified, but Rashana thinks she knows who it was. Whoever it was put the muzzle of a semi-automatic pistol a few inches from Orlando's forehead and pulled the trigger. But nothing happened. Orlando pounced and the two wrestled over the gun. Orlando ended up grazed in the head and shot in the shoulder. Duggan reported that whoever shot Orlando could have finished him off. But instead, the gunman walked away. Orlando assumed that this assailant was somehow connected to Jordan Howe, seeking revenge for the earlier shooting uh, on Alabama Avenue. Orlando got treated at the hospital, but refused to help police figure out who shot him. Police also suspected this shooting was in retaliation for Jordan's death, and they worried that Orlando would lash back. They weighed getting an arrest warrant, but decided they still didn't have enough to make the charges stick. But they were right. Orlando wanted revenge, and he started planning an ambush. Jordan's funeral seemed the perfect place to target. Rashana and Brichelle had no idea. Their parents seemed to have premonitions. The day of the funeral, 
Brichelle's mom, she's just like, I really don't want you guys to go. I don't really know this guy that you guys are talking about and you're saying that he got shot for whatever reason. I don't really know who he is. I don't really, got, I don't really want you guys to go. She wasn't alone. My parents didn't want me to attend as well. They didn't want me to go. But they were stubborn teenagers. So we went to the funeral. Now, because this isn't complicated enough, Roshana had an issue with her school that day. They weren't happy with her for missing the day for a funeral, and they called her mom for a meeting that afternoon. That meeting meant she missed the repast. That's the shared meal after the funeral. But afterward, about 14 friends were still milling around at the corner of South Capitol and Brandywine Streets. Roshana and Brichelle ordered a pizza and went outside to chat with the fellow mourners. It was about then that Orlando Carter had stopped by the house of 17-year-old Tavon Nelson, who had a gun Orlando wanted. Tavon wouldn't hand it over, so Orlando shot him dead. Then he and his friends piled into a rented minivan to get their revenge. The funeral was over, so they drove around the neighborhood where the funeral had been looking for these friends of Jordan. Uh, they finally found them, a bunch of them, sitting on a stoop, smoking, drinking, listening to music mourning Jordan Howe after the funeral on South Capitol Street. Roshana and Brichelle were out chit-chatting with their friends for about half an hour before the van pulled up. Brichelle was listening to music on her iPod. Roshana was talking with an 18-year-old man named Davon Boyd. I'm just talking. I'm having a normal conversation with my friend. And then I look at the grass. It's like little tiny smokes coming from the grass. And then I blink and I'm on the ground. I don't even remember, like, falling or, like, how did I, like, end up on the ground? I don't know. It's just talking and then smoke and then the ground. Wow. Yeah. So when did you realize what was happening? Did you ever hear anything? No. I didn't hear, like, any gunshots or anything. I guess I don't know, like, what the process is for, like, when your brain's going into shock. But at the moment of the smoke, when I'm looking at the smoke coming from the grass, obviously I'm re- like, I'm not registering at that moment, but now looking back on it, I know like those were gunshots coming at me already. And at that moment when I was staring at the smoke, I didn't feel anything or hear anything. So it's like, I don't know if I had already been shot at the moment or what? Cause when I blinked, I had my back to the house and now I'm just sitting flat on the ground like this. And then this is, bleeding and she points to her left shoulder she had been shot in her knee too but she didn't realize that for a few minutes this at the time I didn't really know that I got shot in my knee until I tried to get up and then my leg buckled and I'm like what because I didn't really it felt it felt like my normal leg it didn't feel like anything was wrong with it then I moved in I see like a little tiny hole in my jeans here and I see like a little tiny slit right here and I'm like it's not even bleeding or anything. Like, what is this? She points back to her shoulder again. But this, this is how I know I got shot because it's like, as soon as I fell, I just like looked around and then this is just like swelling. You can like feel it like swelling. I don't know, like when you twist your ankle and it starts instantly burning and like puffing up and it's like a water faucet, like the blood is like shh, just like. So I'm just trying to like hold it really tight, like stop it from swelling up and like stop the blood from coming out. And it was just like coming through my fingers and just, and I was just like, well, there's nothing I can do about that. And I just sat there. 
Rochelle was on the ground in front of her, her face turned away from Roshana. She wasn't moving. Roshana looked around, trying to understand what was happening. Everyone was on the ground. They'd been standing there talking just seconds earlier. And now? She blinked and pulled her phone from her pocket. She called 911, and she called her mom. What do you say to your mom when you... Oh, God. Um, pretty much, I just tell her, like, I'm like, Mom got shot. Me and Rochelle are on South Capitol Street, and we're all shot. And she's just like screams to the top of her lungs like you're where oh sean she's like where are you she's asking me like where am i and i'm telling her like i'm on south capitol street and like her screaming is like scaring me so i just like hang up i'm like i don't want to hear this like and i just sit there and then she's like calling me back calling me back calling me back calling me back police were on the scene within minutes before they arrived rashana had managed to better survey her surroundings pretty much everybody was unconscious but me there was one person who got shot, like, walking next to me, and he was, like, walking around, like, holding his stomach, and you can see his stomach bleeding. He was trying to figure out where he'd been shot. He knew he had been, but there was so much blood that he couldn't find the hole. He was circling around like a kid who's had a note stuck on his back by a classmate. And then I just see the back of his shirt, a little hole in the back of his shirt. So I'm like telling him like, it's your back. And I'm like, you need to sit down because his blood is just like leaking and he's just panicking because he's trying to like figure out where he shot. Roshana realized that the friend she'd been chatting with, Davon, was slumped against her right arm. Her left was useless, so she was desperate to free her right. The guy who I was talking to, Davon, he's just like, I guess like breathing or trying to breathe or something. He's like hissing, making like hissing noises. So he is like 300 pounds and I'm trying to like, I don't really have this arm. It's like swollen and numb and like, I can't move it. So I'm just trying to like ease my way off of him because I see that he's like leaning over on me and he's like huge and I can't get him off me. So I'm just like sitting there like, Jesus, this is just, I don't, it's the, at this moment, I still like, I know that there's a shooting, but I'm still like trying to like make sense of it. Like, what is this? Like, why is this happening? The team at Aftermath is grateful to have Quip as a sponsor of the show. You've heard me talk about Quip, the sleek, new electric toothbrush. It's the nicest-looking toothbrush I've ever owned, and as a bonus, it actually works really well, packing just the right amount of vibrations to help clean my teeth. And here's one of my favorite things. With Quip, I don't have to worry about getting new brush heads or toothpaste even. They're delivered right to my door on a dentist-recommended schedule, so I replace my brush on time and have better oral hygiene at an affordable price. If you're like me and you're a fan of anything that puts a necessary yet annoying aspect of your personal care on autopilot, then you really have to get Quip. It's really a no-brainer. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com aftermath right now, you'll get your first refill pack free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com aftermath, spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com aftermath. Devon's breathing was labored, but he was breathing. Medics arrived and got to work. They addressed the unconscious people first, so Rashana sat there, watching, confused. She noticed another friend, Cabin Attaway, 
was on the ground, a bullet clearly in his head. Kevin's brother, Jamal Blakeney, was hit too, shot in the back. Roshana looked behind her, up some stairs that led from the sidewalk to a house, outside of which everyone had gathered. She saw William Jones III, who went by Marley to his friends. So I look back at him, and it's just horrific. Like He had like really long dreads, and they were like everywhere. Like everywhere. His dreads, his head, his every like insides of everything was just like everywhere in the grass and I'm just like I really think that I'm in a freaking movie. Like this cannot be real life right now. Like the MTs they came, they cut off my jacket, put some gauze and some tape over all of my holes. So they got Davon, they got Kevin, they got my sister, and then it's just me and Marley. He's at the top of the steps. They didn't even bother going up there just because the scene was just so bad. Kevin was still alive, but barely. He would have to relearn how to walk and talk. Davon didn't make it. Roshana's mother and grandmother arrived, but were held back by cops. They waved frantically to get her attention, to let her know she wasn't alone. She was starting to feel frantic. Like, I'm just sitting here now with, like, blood puddle, blood puddle, blood puddle and a dead body, and I'm like, I just want to get out of here. She didn't know what was happening with Brichelle, whose name she called again and again before police loaded her into an ambulance. When the EMTs came, they flipped her over to her back to do uh, resuscitations and CPR and stuff. They kept saying, like, we got something, and then... They were doing it for so long, like I'm just standing the whole time. It's like I'm blocking out everything, all this noise that's going on around me. And I'm just like looking at her face. And her face looks like a little bit frowned, but she's just not moving or breathing or anything. So I'm just like, like she's not, like she's not going to make, like she's not going to make it out of this. She didn't. Brichelle Jones was 16 years old. She had been shot in the head. Roshana tries not to speak about her in past tense. I notice this as we're talking. Do you talk of her in present tense? Is that just natural or is that intentional? No, that's natural. I just, that's, I, I feel like I can control my emotions by saying things a certain kind of way. It's just like how I have control over, like, my emotions, putting it in present tense. Using words that are past tense makes it more real, like makes it more present, the fact that she's not here. I don't like to do that. The South Capitol Street Massacre was national news. This is just a massive crime scene stretching about six blocks. This was definitely one of the most violent things that ever happened in Washington, D.C. Witnesses describe a bloody and chaotic scene as the victims drop to the ground. You just heard, heard some shots. Pop, 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 pop. And people just saying some people laying on the ground. And look on the ground, it's like a football pile up. What authorities believe started this massive act of violence, a stolen bracelet, resulted in the shooting death earlier this month of 20-year-old Jordan Howe. They say there is new evidence based on what they saw in this drive-by shooting. The use of the AK-47 and other evidence they believe made the case against Orlando Carter. I know this week was really hard for everybody, so get through the funerals. We're in the process of of recovering the forensic evidence here on the scene and talking to witnesses. 
It's tough to say how many of America's tens of thousands of shootings each year are retaliation for something else. There's no one leading the charge to tally those figures in any discernible way. Duggan, the Post reporter, says they're all too common in D.C. He started covering crime in the district in 1987, back when the homicide tallies were astronomical, nearly 500 a year. That was at the height of the crack epidemic. The numbers since dropped to about 150 or so annually. By 2010, Duggan says, Most of those killings were the results of prior violence. I mean, it was a, it's like an unending continuum of, uh, my, you know, you shot my friend, I'm going to shoot you, and after I shoot you, some friend of yours is going to come and shoot me. And, uh, you know, a lot of these retributive cycles sort of overlap and uh, I think I talked to the, a lot of the cops at the time told me that, you know, it's, it's a staggering percentage of the homicides in D.C. then, and some large number of them now are just, are just the sort of products of this unending cycle of tit-for-tat sort of shootings. In this case, it all began with that stupid fake gold bracelet. I asked Duggan what he thought the thing had cost. Oh, God, not much. It was sort of this uh, cheap yellow metal with a bunch of glass studs in it you know it, you know if, if it were real it'd be worth a fortune but it was you know it couldn't have been worth more than you know 50 bucks i'm sure it was all it was costume jewelry it's the kind of thing you'd buy you know at a, at a kiosk in a mall because he's had to cover these types of shootings so often he's had time to think about why they might happen i've always thought a lot of this has to do with the sort of socioeconomic circumstances involved you have these people growing up very, very disadvantaged. They don't have a lot of opportunity. They don't see great futures for themselves. And so small acts of disrespect or small things like a bracelet become, you know, gain sort of outsized importance. I mean, if you have a cheap bracelet, you think it's nice. That may be one of the most important things in your life. And when someone disrespects you, you or I might just sort of shrug that off. But to a lot of these folks, that's a high crime. You know, don't disrespect me. Don't steal my bracelet. Don't do things to me that make me look like a punk because uh, I will react in an outsized way. In this case, there's a kicker to this already pointless tale of retribution. Jordan Howe had not stolen the bracelet. In fact, no one involved in any of these shootings did. Police eventually tracked down the gaudy thing to a girl who had spotted it off San Juan's wrist and, knowing how protective he was of it, said she took it home for safekeeping because she worried it might get stolen. Now, whether that was true or not, the person who took it you know, had nothing to do with any of this and was never shot. After the shooting, Roshana was racked with anxiety. Her panic showed up in ways that were hard to explain to other people. The most traumatic thing is not being able to shower. Like, it's a shower. Why wouldn't you be able to do that? And even though the shower had nothing to do with my incident, I felt like that's when you're most vulnerable. Like, you're in the bathroom with the door closed or whatever, inside of another large setting. So it's like a room inside of a bigger room where you can't hear, you're completely naked, and you're by yourself. You're by yourself, you can't hear, you don't know what's going on on the other side of the shower curtain. It's just a really vulnerable space, and I just wasn't comfortable showering if nobody was home. Her response isn't unusual, according to people who study these things. 
Melissa Breimer is Director of Terrorism and Disaster Programs at UCLA Duke National Center for Child Traumatic Stress. She's in the midst of a study now on how children deal with school and mass shootings. Sometimes when someone's gone through a shooting, they keep thinking about the event when they don't want to. So that might come up from a nightmare that might come up because of a reminder. So if you've been in a school shooting, if a potato chip bag pops, that sound of the pop may be similar to the sound of the gunshot, and it takes you back to that day so that your body actually physically reacts like you're in danger again. We also know that being part of um, an event like this, you might want to avoid those types of reminders or avoid things that make you think about the event. So for example, you might not want to come back to the school because every time you come back to the school, it reminds you of your friend that you saw shot and killed in front of you. There can be startle reactions, being on high alert to danger, kind of a a hypervigilance. So I used to go to school and I didn't think about my safety before, but now I'm very aware of where the exits are. And that can get uh, translated to um, going to the movies. And now all of a sudden we're, we're very cognizant of do I feel safe or not. Roshana's vigilance happened to hit hardest in the shower, where she suddenly realized she had nowhere to hide if attacked. She was also racked by survivor's guilt. How could she not be? Both her mother and Brichelle's parents hadn't wanted the girls to go to the funeral, and they really hadn't wanted them to be hanging outside afterward. The request was so adamant, in fact, that her mom, at one point, talking to her on the phone, asked why the group couldn't just gather in Brichelle's living room instead of on the neighborhood stoop. Roshana scoffed. Mom, she said, there's like 20 people here. They won't all fit inside the small house. Brichelle's mom, Nardine, eventually relented. She didn't really, like, let us go a lot of places. And then Brichelle specifically, she's like, I trust Shauna. I know she's a good kid, and I know that she's going to look out for you, and I know that she's going to be there for you. Like, I just trust her with you. This eats at Rishana, who's still so close with Nardine that she calls her my other mom. She knows Nardine doesn't blame her, but that doesn't keep her from being consumed by the what-ifs. The whole guilt thing about why am I here and she's not, like, it's just not fair. And I'm constantly thinking, like, only if I had a time machine, if I just, if we would have just walked away for five seconds or if I just would have did this differently, maybe we should have stayed in there or... Maybe I would have got shot somewhere different, or I would have died. And I just have all these thoughts going through my head, like trying to figure it out. Like, what if, what could I have done to like do it differently? That's when I have all these depressing moments. Nardine says she wrestles with her own guilt. Maybe she should have been firmer. Maybe she should have listened to her gut. Brichelle had a doctor appointment scheduled the day she was killed, but when the doctor called the week prior and said there was a cancellation. She took the open spot. If they'd kept that appointment... She'd still be alive. We would have been at dinner. Our usual routine after doctor's appointment. Nardine still keeps in her refrigerator the pizza box that Roshana and Brichelle had ordered just before the shooting. Three ham and pineapple slices remain inside, all that's left of her daughter's final meal. 
The shooters who wreaked all this havoc were each sentenced to life in prison. I've called the shooting stupid, and I got worried that Brichelle's mom would take offense to that. So I ask, this feels stupid to me. Is that fair? I think they all are, because there's no reason for people to not be able to live in a so-called civilized society and have that kind of disrespect and disregard for life. There's just, there's no reason. Why do you walk into a school and gun down children? Why do you go to a movie theater? Why do you shoot people on the sidewalk? Like you said, one stupid idiot after another, you know, traumatizing people. Right. Rochelle's mom has become an advocate for gun control in the wake of her daughter's death. Nardine supported the South Capitol Street Tragedy Memorial Act, which aims to change how the district addresses youth behavioral health issues. You know, don't want any more young people to lose their lives, and I don't want any more young people to give up their lives and their freedom by doing things that are going to cause them to be locked away for the rest of their lives. So I just hope all will embrace the the changes because they are um, definitely for the better. She sometimes speaks, holding a shocking photo of her little girl, dead on a morgue slab, the Y incision of her autopsy visible, the side of her head blown open from a bullet. It's not how Nardine wants to remember her only child, but she thinks it's important to show people what gun violence does to a body. Gun violence is flesh ripped open, head blown open, your internal organs oozing out of these large holes. That's the real image of gun violence. That's what's burned in my head and her father's head and Rashana's head and people that were there. And I don't feel like, for me, how can we talk about gun violence without actually depicting and showing what it really is? So for me, it's like, that's the reality of it. That's my reality. My entire life changed that night. My future ended that night because my child was my only child. Her child was my only child. I will not ever have grandchildren. That's it. And I just feel like, you know, the world needs to see what I had to see. The biggest lesson she hopes to teach with that photo is that guns aren't glamorous. And they're certainly not toys. What you see in the movies just doesn't match reality. At the end of the day, you don't walk away from the set because you had blanks and the fake blood. You don't get to reset the, the PlayStation or Xbox or whatever the hell they're playing with now after you've killed everybody in the video game. That's not real life. Once you pull that trigger and that metal projectile comes out of that weapon, it has no GPS. It has no eyes. It doesn't care your ethnicity, your sexuality, your zip code. Once it hits that flesh and it ripples through you, and once it's done, it's done. That person is really dead. There's no, oh, let me start over. There's no reset. Death is permanent. Roshana also wants some gun control restrictions passed, but she's quick to say she's not anti-gun. They did make her nervous after the shooting. Like if I would see a gun, I would just like instantly be nervous and shaky and just like my anxiety levels would go to the roof. I didn't want to feel like that. 
but she was determined to get over her fear. To do that, she got a gun, and then another, and another. She went to gun ranges and practiced shooting. I had my shotgun, I had a four or five. I had my Glock 40, I had a Glock 30. I had a 22. I've had, I've had other kind of revolvers. My older brother, he was there with me and he's already familiar with guns. And pretty much he was just teaching me how to take my whole Glock apart. Like take it all the way apart, break it all the way down. Um, how to load it, unload it, um, and do all types of things with it just so I can be comfortable with it. That's what I spent doing the first two months with both of my guns. She wanted to learn what type of gun had shot her and what the bullet had done to her insides. She would ask salesmen in the pawn shop for expertise. Roshana says that learning about guns was her way of taking control. Guns had, by then, directly altered her life twice. And she had control neither time, when her father was killed and when she was shot and her best friend killed. She wanted to take charge. I was just going through my experimenting phase where I just bought a whole bunch of guns and I'm just like, how does this one work? What kind of bullets can I buy for this? It has hollow tips, it has round tips, it has different kinds of, you know, bullets and stuff that you can get for guns and just different stuff. And I felt like that's made me comfortable with them. Like, I'm still kind of like, I'm still nervous around guns, but only around like other people with guns. And that's the part of gun control she can get behind. She doesn't have a problem with guns. She has a problem with who is allowed to buy which kinds. I'm not opposed to having guns. It's just because not everybody with a gun is using a gun for the wrong reason. So it's like, as long as you do what you're supposed to do, like the background checks and not let criminals have guns and make sure that they keep, I think guns should have like trackers or something like, you can't buy a gun unless it's like you're registered, you took a class and you don't have a criminal background. After the South Capitol Street Massacre, Rashana's family moved with the help of a victim's fund and the prosecutor's office. But she hasn't entirely left the neighborhood behind. She still visits Nardine there. The two women earlier this year were on hand as district officials unveiled a street sign in Ward 8 with the honorary name Rochelle Jones Way. It was a bittersweet celebration. That's more the tone Rashana prefers to have when she remembers her friend. Her memories of Brichelle are largely fun and beautiful, and they help her combat the depression when it surfaces, which is more often than she'd like. Birthdays are hard, so is the anniversary of the shooting. Rashana tries to repackage the sorrow as motivation. I do feel pressure. is like that feeling of having something lost is like... If I don't do nothing with my life, then it's like two lives lost. It isn't as though she hadn't aimed high before Brichelle's death. Even the bit of trouble she got in school, like the day of the shooting, happened because she was so headstrong, so determined. Even if she was here and this incident didn't happen, I know I I still have to do something with my life. Like, that's always been the plan since I was younger anyway. My family always said, you have to figure out what it is. Like, you can't just sit at home, you can't work at a mediocre job. (laughs) They want you to be great. That's always the expectation. But in the aftermath, she needs her life to mean something, to help make sense of why those bullets took Brichelle, but not her. It's just like more pressure now. Nardane, she always tells me like, you can't live for you and Brichelle. I'm like, 
That's what I'm trying to do. That's the plan. I gotta do it, I have to. I just feel like, me personally, the relationship that I have with her, I'm not doing it for her mom. I'm not doing it for my parents. Just what I feel inside of me and how I'm tethered to her, I have to do it. I just have to do something productive with my life that's gonna have a great impact. Not just mediocre impact, like massive. Next time on Aftermath. You know, at the age that I was at, like it was, it really wasn't no turning back. So she had to basically just pray and hope that, you know, hope for the best and hope I stay out of trouble. I just had a bad choice of friends that I, I chose to hang around with. And at the end of the day, it caught up with me. Cause I, I feel like if I didn't go to jail, what was gonna be my next wake up call? It probably would have been me going to sleep eternally. Aftermath is the result of a partnership between the Cincinnati Enquirer, part of the USA Today Network, and The Trace. It's reported by Amber Hunt and Elizabeth Van Brocklin, edited by Amy Wilson, and produced by Phil Didion and Amanda Rossman. Music is by Andrew Higley. Intern Brianna Rice assisted. Some episodes include additional sound courtesy of awesome local journalists. For full clip credits, go to our website. The podcast was supported in part by a fellowship from the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma at Columbia Journalism School. For videos, photos, and more, go to aftermathpod.com. You can follow us on Twitter at AftermathPod or find us on Facebook. Facebook.